standing. Let's do so for just a bit longer. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This morning we want to read verses 5 through 11, which will serve as um, our framework, not simply for this morning, but Lord willing for um, each Lord's Day this month. Philippians uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. Father, our prayer is that now as we consider your word, that by your spirit you would be at work in our midst, and in particular in each of our hearts. Show us wonderful things from your word and alter us, transform us by what you show us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're stepping out of Psalm 119. For the month of December, Lord willing, we'll jump back in uh, the first Sunday in January. But our plan for this month is to devote the, the four Sundays of December to more explicitly focusing upon Jesus. Two Sundays uh, this month, we plan to focus upon the person of Christ, who is God and who is man. And then two Sundays... We hope to focus upon the experiences or activities of Jesus, who was both uh, humbled and exalted. And you see all of these four features here in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 11. In each of these Sundays, as we think about Jesus as God, Jesus as man, Jesus as humbled, Jesus as exalted, I want us to do that around the orientation of the sacrifice of Christ and how his deity, his humanity, his humiliation, and his exaltation all interact with the the death and the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I've just read Philippians 2. Uh, each Sunday we want to read that, for that is the, the, that's going to give us the framework and the outline of these four Sundays. Uh, and I will certainly touch on 
on the Philippians 4, and yet our, our, our style will be a bit different this, this morning and, and this month from normal. Uh, we won't exclusively stay in Philippians 2. Uh, we, will, we will broaden out the, uh, and look at additional scriptures uh, at that particularly this morning help us to consider uh, the deity of Christ. It's almost as if, the, like in the words of Isaiah in the early chapters where he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We want to reason from Scripture. This morning, we want to reason from Scripture uh, pertaining to the deity of Christ. Two things I want to say about the deity of Christ. There, there is an insert in your bulletin, if that's helpful to you. First of all, I, I want to, to state something about the reality of Christ's deity. I want to do that briefly. I say briefly, not because there's not much in the Bible about the deity of Christ. Oh, there is. But simply, I, I want to put more emphasis upon the second point. I want to state something of the reason for the importance or even the necessity of Christ's deity concerning us and our salvation. So first of all, the reality of Christ's deity. Our verse 6 here in our reading, speaking of Jesus, it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians 2.6 just matter-of-factly declares to us the deity of Jesus. Now, No need to be confused here. There's no sleight of hand going on. It says that though he was in the form of God, it's it's, it's not saying uh, he was in the form of God in the sense that, well, he kind of looked a lot like God, but he really wasn't. It it doesn't mean the form of God in that way. Our our very context is emphatic that that whatever he's trying to express about Jesus being in the form of God, it it doesn't mean that he was some cheap knockoff or some uh, uh, facsimile of the real thing. For it says there, as it it helps to define what it means to be in the form of God, it says, "And, and he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, Jesus wasn't kind of a lot like God, just kind of taking a bit of the appearance of God. Jesus was co-equal, co-eternal God. Our God is, is one, and yet our one God is comprised of three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And narrow one of them is more God than the other. And really what it's saying for the purposes of this passage is that, is that Jesus did not consider uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he, he wasn't about to pull out his God card and, and, and to use that for his own advantage. He wasn't about to pull out his God card and use that for his own self interests and gain. No, Jesus, just like Father, just like the Spirit, all three members of the Godhead who are not simply God, but they are selfless God. Jesus doesn't have a selfish bone in his body, if you would. 
You see, the apostolic witness concerning the deity of Christ is clear and it's consistent. There is, there is no ambiguity on this matter in the Scriptures. All the apostles and writers of the New Testament bear witness to Jesus' deity. And yet the strongest texts are texts like Colossians 1, uh, Hebrews 1, and John 2. We won't look at those this morning, but, but if you need encouragement in grasping the reality of Christ's deity, those are, those are uh, places to jump into and to start. Now, in spite of this, it has become increasingly popular to be somewhat coy as to Jesus' deity by suggesting that Jesus never once claimed deity for himself in the Gospels. I don't know where people get these ideas. They get them from Religion 101 in college, I guess, but that is just simply not the case. The Gospels are replete with evidence that Jesus was God. The first round of evidence is just simply how he proved or displayed his deity by doing such things as forgiving people of their sins, Mark chapter 2, or instilling the storm at sea with just his word, Matthew chapter 8, or in knowing the thoughts and hearts of people, John chapter 2. And yet, in addition to all of those sort of examples of proving or demonstrating, uh, Jesus did directly claim to be God. John 8 records one of those episodes and examples where he just simply says to the crowds, before Abraham was, I am. You're like, really? That's a claim to be God? Well, if you, if you understood what the crowds who heard Jesus said that understood, if you understood that, that the statement I am is derived directly from Exodus chapter 3 where God appears to Moses and begins to explain some things and Moses wants to know who he's talking to and he just simply says, I am. Or, or that statement runs throughout Isaiah 40 through 55 in reference to the, the, uh, God himself and the activity. In other words, the, the point is that the crowds in that day understood what Jesus was saying. And of course, they believed it was a false claim. They believed that he deserved to die right on the spot for such a blasphemous claim. But they understood the claim. We could go on. But the reality is that Jesus is God. Really what I want to do for the rest of our time is to now parse out some of the significance of Jesus' deity for us and for our salvation. Uh, what, uh, what's the reason behind Jesus being God? Jesus was God, but was that really necessary for Jesus to be God in order to be the sacrifice for our sins and for our salvation? Must we be so fastidious about this and make a fuss about something? 
Well, the scriptures testify to the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice for us and for our salvation and underscores in the context of the necessity of that sacrifice that such a sacrifice be divine. Let me do that through a couple of different scriptures that I want to recite for you. First, just some general statements that that describe to us something of the purpose for why Jesus is God who takes on flesh and becomes the God-man. Remember the angel appearing before Joseph right on the eve of Jesus' arrival? He says there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, And you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Two verses later, he says, And, and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, early before Jesus ever got here, uh, the angels were already announcing the arrival of Jesus for his atoning work of sacrifice and that one who would make such an atonement would be none other than God himself. Or even Jesus in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 as he's trying to help his followers to understand what's up and what he's about. For he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. A a ransom is just simply a, a price paid for the release of someone from bondage. I've come to give my life to pay a ransom. Or... The words of Jesus speaking of the exclusivity of who he is and what he's about to do on the very eve of his sacrifice. He says to his disciples in in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, how many? No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a pretty bodacious claim of exclusivity. Or Jesus underscoring the necessity of his work on the cross for us and for our salvation. When he explains to his disciples in Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them um, saying that the Son of Man, which is a wonderful description that the Old Testament uses to, in a sense, uh, refer to divinity and deity. Where he says, and he began to teach them saying that the Son of Man must. Is all this necessary? What did Jesus think? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. No, it's connected to God. And must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Or Jesus Later that same night from John 14, 6, says in Matthew 26, verse 39, in the garden, right before he's arrested, he prays to the Father, if it is possible. (laughs) Is there any other way we could pull this off? If it is possible, take this Now, remind me to say more about that cup in a second. Take this cup from me, if it's possible. 
or post-resurrection. Remember when Jesus in Luke 24 is walking on the road to Emmaus. He's got a couple of guys who, who are just really confused about what just happened and don't even recognize that they're walking with Jesus. And he begins to teach them all things concerning himself from the law and the writings and the prophets. And he says there, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? Necessary. Or bumping it out, think of what the apostles preached concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, Peter in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 where he just simply says, For salvation is found in no one else. How many options are there? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name. How many other names? There is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Is all this necessary? Pun intended, but, but isn't the death of Jesus a bit of overkill? No. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that there is one mediator. How many? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Or in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, and we could spend a lot of time hanging out there, but in chapter 9 it makes this bold statement, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. How much forgiveness of sins is there without the shedding of blood? None, no, zilch, nada, zero. And, and yet in chapter 10 of Hebrews, it, it, it then kind of says... For it was impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. So do you see the tension here? It's impossible for there to be forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And the the blood of goats and bulls didn't do the trick. That's why he would say in chapter 9, verse 23, this speaking of Christ, this is why it was necessary. See, Jesus didn't come just for the drama of it. He certainly came in love, but he came to pull off more than to demonstrate love. That's that's not to cheapen that. You see, at the very heart and the center of the Christian gospel, the very heart and center, ground zero of what we are to believe and love and wonder and praise concerning the Christian gospel is the sacrificial death of Jesus. He came to die. For there was no other way for people like you and I to be pardoned of our sins before a holy God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, concerning what he preached. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Then it goes on to say, And that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The, the center of what we preach and believe is the death of Jesus. Was that necessary? 
was there, is there no other way? Why is sacrifice necessary for forgiveness? And why must that sacrifice be Son of God? Let's lean into this a bit more this morning. Bear with me. We often don't grasp all that is entailed concerning our sin. Now, at times, we we certainly know some aspect of our sin. Sometimes, if we're alert and paying attention, we, we know something of the guilt and shame of our sin. Sometimes we may even be aware of something of the bondage that we experience because of our sin. And and those are real things, guilt, shame, bondage. and, And those are things that Jesus beautifully remedies. But there are other aspects concerning us and our sin that we maybe aren't as innately aware of. For instance... We don't probably think long and hard about the fact that our sin is ultimately to be understood, not just in our own intrapersonal psychological feelings, but our sin is to be understood in reference to God. Sin is against God. Sin is a defiance toward God. Sin is a rejection of God. Sin is rebellion toward God. So first and foremost, the the utmost consequence of our sin, it certainly leaves us feeling yucky, and it certainly makes us feel weak and powerless. But, But the first and foremost consequence of our sin is not a troubled conscience, or even the horizontal mess that we make with our sin with those around us. Sin warrants. Sin deserves God's judicial sentence against us. Our sin is at him and toward him. And his response is toward us. And when we think about something of God in passages like Nahum chapter 1, where it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. Uh, uh, He he takes vengeance on his adversaries and uh, he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That's a stout word. We exist on our own in a state of condemnation before God. We are cut off from Him. We are cursed uh, before Him. We are damned by Him. We are in debt to Him. We are at enmity with Him. 
And it goes right to the very character of God's own nature. He is holy and just and righteous. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In His holiness, in His justice, in His righteousness, the, the very character of God must be satisfied before He grants forgiveness and provides a new relationship with people such as us. Oh, and it gets worse. This state that we are in is not a state that God takes lightly, and it's not a state that you and I can remedy on our own. When we read through the Scriptures, we, we, we begin to see that when we compare ordinary sinful man with eternal, infinite, holy God. We, we, we see that there's a chasm that, that cannot be bridged. That's why Job in chapter 9 simply says, how can, a ma- how can a man be made right before God? Or even the prophet Isaiah, when he sees himself in, 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 in the context of God's holiness, he just simply says, woe is me, for I am lost. Or the cutting words of Jeremiah chapter 30, where he says to the people in their sinful state, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. There is no medicine for your wound. There is no healing for you. Sin has to be resolved ultimately before God, and we are unable to work that resolution. But God has worked it out. God has worked it out. God, who is the one who has been wronged, who has been violated, who has been rejected, who has been uh, offended, concerning our sin. He would, on the one hand, be just just to leave us in the state that we are in. Why? Because God would be just to demand satisfaction from us for our sin against Him. But how long would it take for someone like you and I to satisfy the eternal, infinite justice of God? I ask that rhetorically because I would suggest to you that's in part why tragically and sadly and yet justly hell is eternal. You can go it on your own and appease the justice of God and try to pull that off in the state of hell for all eternity. You see, that is in congruence with who God is. He is just to demand satisfaction. And yet, what is also in congruence with who God is, is He is gracious. And He has provided a way to grant us pardon 
and rescue and restoration and reconciliation. His grace and his justice are are not qualities that will be pitted against each other in his own nature and character, but they are qualities that will work together to display a remedy, not by overlooking our sin, but by punishing our sin. And he will do that Father, the Father will do that in His Son by the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit agree that the Son will live in obedience to the Father, becoming a man, living in the power of the Spirit in order to take our punishment for our sin. And so Jesus comes into the human race by His incarnation, qualifying Himself in righteousness to be the last Adam and to be our only mediator and our only Savior. Christ offers to the Father in, in, in an incarnational obedience and a sacrificial death on our behalf as a substitute. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, who is God the Son incarnate, satisfies the justice of God, satisfies the, the just demands of God, and displays in so doing the eternal love of God for His people. You see, what eternal God in the flesh did at a moment in time at the cross, is he made an infinite payment to satisfy infinite justice in the sight of a holy God. And the word that the New Testament uses to describe this payment of satisfaction is the word propitiation. It's used four times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4. A, a pit, propitiation, which is a rich Old Testament word, is simply refers to a sacrifice that would turn away just wrath, that would take away sin. Jesus, the Son of God, the infinite, eternal God who took on flesh, who shed His blood at the cross, propitiated satisfied, turned away God's justice by absorbing that justice in himself. And that that displays God's eternal love, that Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who is the source of that sacrifice, obtains for us our pardon and our reconciliation with our God and our Maker. Do you see the irony? Who is it that grants the forgiveness but the one who was offended? Who is it that absorbs the cost for our pardon but the very one who was offended by our sin? He absorbs in love all the costs of our forgiveness. We don't absorb it. There's no remedy there. We don't go out in the universe and find some innocent third party to absorb it. No, 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 no. You see the beauty of God's love? It is a member, a person of God's own being who puts himself forward 
on, uh, for us and for our behalf to secure our pardon. Remember what Jesus said in the garden, if it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup from me. A passage like Psalm 75 gives us the imagery of what is meant by that cup. That cup is a reference to, the, to God's just wrath. The psalmist says, but it is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, and they shall drain it down to its dregs. The cup of wrath that would otherwise justly be ours is the cup that Jesus, Son of God, drinks on our behalf. 300 years ago, Isaac Watts said it this way in a poem. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for a worm such as I? Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived. We thank you for the sacrifice that he willingly offered concerning himself. We thank you for the shed blood that pardons us, that satisfies your just demands, and yet also demonstrates your eternal love. Oh, Father, may we not be casual this Christmas on merely assenting to the reality of these things, but may it affect us. May our consent be that we love and follow and trust in Jesus. May we belong to him, the one who has sacrificed himself for us and our salvation. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.